In case you forgot, it's not easy being a kid. For one thing, you make a lot of mistakes. Some are obvious even to you. For the others, well, that's why we have parents. You can usually count on mom or dad, or mom and dad, to remind you when you're not measuring up, with your grades, your chores, your choice of friends, your attitude. But sometimes what you're not measuring up to is your parents' notion of the way you ought to be. When I arrived home for Thanksgiving vacation my freshman year in college, I eagerly rang the bell. I heard my mom's quick steps. I couldn't wait to hug her. But when she opened the door, the first thing she said was, what did you do to your eyebrows? My eyebrows? Uh, hi mom. Good to see you too. Was she a bad mom? Capital B, capital M. No. She always believed she was being helpful. But from a kid's point of view, not feeling accepted and appreciated for who you are, eyebrows and all, can make you feel, well, kind of crappy. Listen to this teen who emailed me recently. I feel like everything I do is wrong when it comes to my parents. I always do what they ask, but when I mess up on one thing, they get mad as if I'd done something very bad. I've been called stupid many times by my dad, and they're saying I'm not using my head. I might not have gotten a good grade in geometry, but I've tried my hardest, but they don't seem to understand that. They say I'm lazy, and I'm stupid, and that they're very disappointed in me. I don't know what to do anymore. Breaks your heart, huh? Look, I don't know this girl or her parents, but I'm thinking she's not getting some validation she needs from her folks. Maybe she's over-dramatizing, but even if just half of what she's saying is accurate, then her parents are missing out on what's right with their daughter because they're so focused on what they think needs to be fixed. This is Annie Fox, and this is Family Confidential, Secrets of Successful Parenting. Today's show, Is My Kid the Problem or Is It Me? My guest today is Joan Ryan. Joan is an award-winning journalist and author. Her newspaper work spans 25 years. A pioneer in sports journalism, Joan was one of the first female sports columnists in the country. Her first book, Little Girls in Pretty Boxes, The Making and Breaking of Elite Gymnasts and Figure Skaters, was a controversial, groundbreaking expose that Sports Illustrated named one of the top 100 sports books of all time. Joan is a founding board member of Team Up for Youth, a nonprofit organization that taps into the power of sports to help low-income youth learn and grow. Joan's new book is The Water Giver. It's the true story of her son, Ryan Tompkins, and how his traumatic brain injury gave both mother and son a second chance. Welcome, Joan. Thanks, Annie. I'm so glad you're here with us. I wanted to get right into the story because there's so much to cover. You had quite a career as a a full-time sports columnist for the San Francisco Examiner, one of the first women in the country to hold that position. In in your book, you write about overcoming challenges in that role, including conducting interviews in NFL locker rooms, (laughs) which required you to ignore the jockstraps that were occasionally tossed in your direction. And yet you write, and I'm quoting you now, I thought I could handle anything, and then I became a mother. I think many of us, when we first become parents, have all kinds of expectations and assumptions about what it will be like, what will be like in this new role, how our child will behave, what this new relationship will be. And of course, very few of those assumptions are realistic, and yet they're so powerful. And I believe in many ways they can set us up for disappointment. So tell us, what expectations did you have about becoming a mom? I guess I thought my child would be a lot like me. Which was? Which was quiet. I was, you know, always a nice girl. I loved to read. I loved to play sports. And so I thought that, and I was very responsible, respectful. Part of it, of course, is the way I was raised. One of six children to Irish Catholic 
parents, you know, who ruled with an iron fist. So, of course, I was going to be that way because I'd get the tar beaten out of me if I didn't. But, yeah, and I thought, you know, I love to play with, even though I was a tomboy, you know, I played with dolls when I was growing up. And so I kind of had this image of this baby doll that I would carry around and who would coo and and grow and I would just delight in every, you know, the first word and the first step and we'd have fun, you know, I'd read to him every night and, you know, he would want to read and he'd want to learn and we would travel together and I would be able to pass on to him this wealth of information and, and instill in him the, you know, intellectual curiosity that that I had honed over the last 30 years because I was 30 when Ryan was born and I knew he was going to be an only child and that I had resources that my parents didn't have so I was able to, was going to be able to give this child this amazing life and Ryan was adopted Ryan was so adopted I'm sure that added in a way to the expectations because you were choosing you were choosing this baby. This this baby was coming to you, I think, in a way that may be different than the haphazard way that that natural-born children come to parents. It was very planned mm-hmm. in that way, certainly. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we put a lot of effort into adopting. And it never occurred to me that we, there was any difference. You know, you have a child, you adopt. I mean, a baby's a baby. And really what I wanted was motherhood, which to me was raising a child, not delivering a child. (laughs) How the child came into my life was irrelevant. And I think since then, you know, now I do know, though, that adopted children are disproportionately represented in, you know, the learning disability community and, you know, mental health. Why that is, there's a lot of theories about it, but there is a component of it is different. To adopt a child than to have your own child. Number one, you don't know everything there is to know. You don't know what the um, in utero experience was for the child. So you're completely taken by surprise right. um, in many ways that I was not prepared for. Well, let's talk about some of those surprises compared to the, the lovely picture you just painted of your expectations. Mm-hmm. What was the reality of being Ryan's mom in those early years? What was it like? Well, the reality, first of all, was I was completely unprepared for how hard and deeply I fell in love with this baby. <laughs> Number one, because we love our parents, we love our husband, we love our you know friends. And then this child comes into your life who just takes your breath away. I mean, that that you, you know, I remember, you know, just being exhausted. Gosh, you know, finally he'd go to sleep during the day and I oh, finally put him down. It's like, oh, my God, I can sit. I can have something to eat. I can have a cup of tea. And within 10 minutes, I was pulling a chair up to his crib and just staring at him. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, when's he going to wake up again? So I wasn't prepared for the depth of feeling, because I had never felt that way about another human being. I also was not prepared for how exhausting it was and how puzzling it was. I was a very, you know, great student when I was in, you know, I think I went into journalism because I just love to learn. And I always figured, you know, boy, if I just study and work hard enough, boy, I can master anything. I can figure this out. Because everything in my life had worked that way. I could figure it out if I just work hard enough and talk to the experts. And Well, you know, this this baby was not like that. I could not figure this kid out. I didn't know how to comfort him. He was very, extremely hypersensitive to fabrics and noise and sunlight and smells. He was colicky and really, and, and you know, pretty explosive to all of that stimuli. And it wasn't until he was four years old and after having, you know, quite a rocky experience in preschool. Did you think that that his um, sensitivity to stimuli was within the normal range? Did you talk to a pediatrician about it, for example? We did talk to a pediatrician. And I think it's tough to find out what's normal range with 
a young child with mm-hmm. a, with a baby. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, because I only have one child, and and because I wasn't naturally a nurturing, warm and fuzzy person. Of course, I thought it was me. You know, I thought, well, I'm not responding to him the way I'm supposed to respond. So, of course, he's responding to me this way. Of course, you know, he was responding to my husband in the same way for the most part. But I think there was a little bit of that, that I wasn't a natural at this. And that shocked me. Mm-hmm. I really kind of thought I would be because mm-hmm. my mother was. I grew up with all these brothers and sisters. And then to find out that, oh, really, you're, you know, you're not just picking up on this very well. Um and so that then his behavior then fed into my own sense that, boy, you really are bad at this. So then I'd buy every book there was thinking, okay, I'm going to just learn how to do this instead of just like being mm-hmm. and letting, you know, I just, again, was going to study my way out of this. So the idea that you weren't doing it right came from what was going on with Ryan, which, as you found out later, had nothing to do with you. For the no, most part. No, it, it, you know, and there's always that little piece of you that still believes the worst. It's like when I was, you know, a reporter and I'd write something and I'd get, you know, 300 wonderful letters and then the three terrible ones. And I would just look at those three terrible ones and say, God, they're right. You know, and kind of ignore the 300. So it's kind of kind of the same way. But yeah, in preschool, he had a really tough time and he would explode. And, you know, I'd sit by the phone at that point, I was writing a book, so I had taken a leave of absence from the newspaper. So I was writing at home, and I would sit by the phone and wait for the preschool teacher to call me and say, you know, Ryan's having a tough day, come get him. And what did what did constituted a tough day in the preschool teacher's mind? He would be throwing a tantrum and kicking and screaming because some kid got too close to him, some kid wanted, you know, he wanted the toy that... Um, you know, other kids were playing with. And so part of me being one of six, thinking, oh, God, he's just that spoiled only child. We're doesn't just know how to share. He doesn't know how to share. He's just spoiled. He just wants everything his own way. And, you know, then the preschool teachers were like, no, this is something else. This is more than that. And that's when we first went and saw the Child Development Center at you know, San Francisco Hospital. And you got a diagnosis of sensory integration dysfunction. Can you tell us what that is and how you felt hearing that? Well, my understand. well, first of all, <clears throat> I immediately leap to, oh, this is some sort of invented, <laughs> you know, oh, there's a diagnosis for everything. Okay, come on. You know, he's just a sensitive kid. But really what it is, is that the, the central nervous system is hyperactive so that they process information they process stimuli differently than other kids so when he's complaining about the tag in his shirt you know you're like get over it everybody has a tag in their shirt i mean it really hurts for him to have the tag in his shirt it really hurts for him to have you know socks that aren't made of soft fabric Mm -hmm. the sunlight hitting his eyes when he's in the car it's not just annoying as it is for the rest of us it hurts so it's it's kind of on the autism spectrum how autistic kids are you know hypersensitive to different things um, to people touching them mm-hmm. and Ryan wasn't sensitive to people touching them touching him but certain t- like if somebody jostled him when he wasn't expecting it he'd go crazy but he also didn't recognize when he was was in contact with other people like he didn't have a sense of gentle or hard in touching people hitting people you know all of that he had no sensibility about that at all so it was social interactions were extremely stressful so you get this diagnosis and you say okay to the degree that i buy into it um how can we use this to help ryan Right. And there was, you know, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and we'd do things at home and, you know, do this kind of gentle roughhousing and you'd get these, you know, surgical brushes and you'd brush them. And, you know, the truth of the matter is he did get better. I mean, he was, you know, by degree, but it was definitely better. And also that we had at least some diagnosis of something. But as anybody who has a child who has learning differences or any kind of you know, learning disabilities, they come in clusters. It's 
almost never one thing. So that then once he be went to school, we realized, well, he's got some processing issues. He's got ADHD. You know, so there were things that he has some active working memory. And, you know, so I ended up, you know, having my black three ring binders and just collecting information and information and all the testing and all, you know. And the one thing, the, the downside of having resources and, you know, having the money, you know, to travel and do all of this is that you also have the money to go to every expert you think is going to help you. So you're going from one person to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. You know, we've called, you know, homeopathic and the, you know, eye tracking and the, you know, neuropsychologists and the occupational therapists and the physical therapists. And because, you know, you really want to give your child the very best opportunity to succeed in life. No, so you'll go of course. to everything and you become this pinball in a pinball machine going from one thing to the next and becoming so would you say, increasingly frustrated. Would you say that you describe that as the downside of having the financial resources to explore under each rock a hopeful solution? Mm -hmm. Had you not had the resources, do you think you might have been just more accepting earlier on? I do, actually. Um, I'm glad that we had the resources because there were things that really did help Ryan. And so it's always better, you know, to have more than less in that way. So for but, example, for example, the um, desensitization, the, the little brushes on his, mm -hmm. on his skin. Can you think of, if there's some parents in our listening audience now mm -hmm. who are just new to a diagnosis like this or this cluster of, of issues, what would you say, you know, if you're going to choose a path to go down, we found this path actually to be worthwhile and these not so much? You know, it's different for every kid, but here's the advice I would give. Go with what has some proof to it, that there is actually some longitudinal testing that says, okay, there are results and here are the concrete results. We would just go headlong into anything anybody told us, oh, that anecdotally had helped their kid or had helped some other kids. You know, I just say, well, where are the studies? And, and then go with that because boy, you can hemorrhage, you can hemorrhage money mm -hmm. and you're just spinning your wheels and spinning your wheels and spinning your wheels. You know, and I'm not, dismissing, you know, homeopathy or, you know, food or any of that, because there are studies that show some of these treatments do work for a certain number of kids. So, you know, you have to find your own comfort level, mm -hmm. but really ask for, well, where's, where's the proof? And, and not that everything's going to work for you just because it's worked for somebody else and the studies are there, but you have a higher likelihood. Sure. And, and what's going on with the kid as he's being toted to all of these specialists. Right. You know, and, and exactly. And, and so there's a certain amount of you're sending the message to your child that you're defective, you're defective, you're defective, and we just keep trying to fix you, fix you, fix you. Mm -hmm. On the other, the flip side of that, of course, is to demystify it. Say, hey, you know what? This is how your brain works. It just is. This is how your brain works. And so you do have to do some extra work. And we as parents have to do some extra work to compensate for how your brain works. But guess what, kid? Everybody's got something. Well, that sounds just reasonable. happens to be yours. Yeah. yeah. That is reasonable. So mm -hmm. if you go down that path, you know, you don't want to hide from your kid that there is something going on with the, your brain. Mm -hmm. your brain, Because there is. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to pretend that there isn't. But you also don't want to make the kid feel like he's defective. You're just saying, hey, this is just how your brain works. Look, you've got blue eyes. You've got brown hair. You know, you've got active working memory deficits. I don't do a lot of things well. This is what you don't do well. And so what do we do about it? And you don't, and here's the other thing. I think Ryan, my son, kind of got to the point where he could start using stuff as excuses. And uh. it's teaching him like, no, it ain't an excuse, kid. Because there are ways that you can compensate for it. You don't have active working memory, well, then you got to start writing stuff down. You know, or if you've got slow processing, okay, so you listen to the books on tape while you're reading it, find what works for you. Yeah. And as a parent, you need to put your child in an environment that fits their learning style. So, like, Ryan can't be in a class where the teacher's just lecturing, you know, and going on and on and on, talking fast. Not going to work. 
he's going to miss half of it. So we got him into a school that very small classes, you know, he can go back and talk to the teachers. They understand that he doesn't process information. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. But the worst thing, I think, is for a kid to start using it as an excuse for failure. Mm-hmm. That feeds into a, um, a self-fulfilling prophecy inside the kid, assumptions about who he is, what his mm-hmm. limits are. And I just, I'm the kind of person who just can't get it. Right. And also that you become your disease instead of saying, yeah, I have ADHD. You hear people say, oh, I'm ADD. Mm-hmm. No, you're not ADD. <laughs> your right. brain has some attention issues, right. but that's not who you are. You're way more than your ADD. Right. And one thing I loved about the book is how you were so great about contrasting, yes, your frustrations and your honesty about your frustrations and your feelings of overwhelm at times during this early school years, but also these wonderful, clear demonstrations of Ryan's big heart. Mm. And I'd love for you to tell us about that and how it sounds like it gave you pause every time you saw that, even mm-hmm. in the midst of, okay, I'm going to fix this, and maybe it's because I'm not a good mother, but then you'd see the perfection of who he was. Right. Yeah, there were these moments, because I would, my husband was a glass half full, I was glass half empty. I always saw what Ryan was missing that I needed to fill and what was not working and I needed to fix. And I oftentimes would miss just really what a wonderful kid he is. And, you know, there was one time we'd, we'd go visit my husband's mother was living in one of these little retirement homes. She was widowed and, you know, her health wasn't that great. And so you'd go into these places. And I had a hard time going into these places because, you know, you know, the people are just not living, you know, very full lives. And, you know, they're in God's waiting room. You know, they're just waiting for the end to come. And, and we'd go visit her. She didn't live very far. So we actually were over there quite a bit. And Ryan... Maybe he was eight, nine years old, you know, this kind of big strapping boy with the buzz cut. And, you know, he's kind of a gorilla, you know, he's just a bull in a china shop. He loved those folks. He would sit down and, I mean, he loved his grandmother and just doted on her completely. And he'd sit down with them and just say, oh, so what was it like, you know, back in 19, whatever it was. And really? And you were in the war, and what was that like? And did you have those kind of phones that you had to pick up with one hand and you dialed with it? <laughs> he was absolutely fascinated. Well, boy, the people just lit up when Ryan came in, and oh, can I take that for you? Can I? Get... And just all completely instinctive, you know, that he just connected with people. And that's the one thing with Ryan. You know, we have traveled a lot, and what I love about that kid is that. No matter who he he meets, people where they are, he sees no difference. He'll go up to anybody. You know, we're in Thailand or we're out in Malaysia or something, and some kid is pulling in. You know, he's working with his dad. You know, pulling in fish, and that's what the kid does. He's in raggedy shorts and whatever. And Ryan's like walking, just watching them. And God, now how do you do that? What is that made of? You make your own nets and. Before you know it, Ryan's hauling the fish in with them and throwing them in and helping them cut it up and learning how to do it. And they've invited us over for dinner. You know, and Ryan, you know, we kind of push Ryan out there and he's our front man. And he just meets everybody because he's genuinely, he has the intellectual curiosity that I always hoped my child would have. He just has it in a completely different way than I do. I'm the safe book learning intellectual curiosity, mm-hmm. and he is just out there in the world and meeting people. And, you know, I mean, I've learned so much, but I had to step back to allow myself to learn it, to know that, oh my God, this kid is my teacher. <laughs> ah. Not the other way around. All right. <laughs> it sounds like he's very accepting of people. He is. He, you say he meets them where they are. And I'm willing to wager that there have been kids who've encountered him in classroom situations who were not so accepting of Ryan mm. because of his differences. Absolutely. And how wonderful for him not to have turned that against anyone and just stayed 
open in that way. That is the one thing that, you know, professionals that we've dealt with have been amazed that Ryan still has pretty good self-esteem. He does get down on himself and he'll say, oh, I'm just so stupid. Or, you know, if he doesn't understand something or, you know, all of that. And part of that is just being a teenager also, right. you know. But yeah, I mean, it, certainly in middle school, toward the end of elementary school, in middle school, Ryan wasn't in the right, we were in a public school, you know, very type A community. And Ryan just could not function. It was just too fast-paced. Things were going, you know, at a level that he couldn't keep up. And, well, what happens? That, and this is one one of the best lessons that I learned, is that kids, teenagers, young adults, they would rather be looked at as bad than stupid. The worst thing you could be is stupid. Mm. So in a classroom or on a playground, kids are playing. They've been playing the same game for 10 years. And Ryan still doesn't understand the rules because he doesn't process that way. So instead of saying, okay, after 10 years, I still don't understand the rules because the kids would look at him like, are you kidding? How can you not understand these rules? Well, Ryan would blow up and say, well, you guys aren't playing the right way and I'm not going to play and you guys are stupid because you would much rather be looked at as just, you know, a bad kid than a stupid kid. Interesting. You know, or blow up in a classroom and, you know, get thrown out of a classroom because you've done something bad rather than be exposed as being stupid. When I learned that, that that really does happen, boy, a lot of things fell into place with Ryan. And not that he was ever a bad kid, but he could blow up. He'd lose his temper mm -hmm. or he'd challenge the teacher and get angry at the teacher and mm -hmm. raise his voice because that way he would get sent out of the class and go into the resource room or, or whatever because he just didn't want to get exposed, that he didn't understand what was going on. So interesting. I wonder how many of us use that same defense mechanism in our adult lives where you become combative when someone gets too close to your lack of knowledge in some area. Absolutely. That's, that's a stupid argument, so I don't even want to talk about it, you might say, when right. when you don't have the knowledge base. Right. You've been exposed, yeah. you know, with it with your own that soft, raw piece of you that you don't like to come to the surface. So you're gonna do whatever you can to hide that vulnerability. And so much more so with teens and middle school students, um, when the pressure to be accepted by peers is so great. And the last thing you want to do is look like you don't fit in or you're not cool in some way mm -hmm. or as savvy as they are because they'll cut you down. Exactly. Now that we've gotten some background of some of the challenges you faced, let's talk about what happened on August 15th, 2006, which was the accident, which is really the core dramatic piece in the book. So by that point, Ryan was in 10th grade, or was going into 10th grade, actually, at a small school here in um, Marin County. And, and I was working full-time at the San Francisco Chronicle at this time. And I really had become, by that point, really more my son's advocate and educator and taskmaster than his nurturing mother. That was the role that had kind of calcified around me. And it was a role that I didn't like about myself, but I didn't know how to be anything else. And Ryan was actually doing pretty good in school. He was adjusting. We had gotten him on some really good medication. He was in a good learning environment, had gone to a school for kids with learning disabilities and learned some compensating skills. So he was kind of on his way and, you know, things were getting much better. So on that afternoon, he also is very handy. He loves tools. And, and so he had been actually making skateboards and he was trying out some new bearings. And he had loaned his helmet to the kid next door, 
and hadn't gotten it back. And Ryan wanted to try out these new bearings. And of course, you know, couldn't take the time to go next door and get his helmet. And he usually did wear his helmet. So he goes out. Barry and I were going to go off to his school for a meeting at 530 in the afternoon. And, you know, Barry had said, okay, well, we'll see you later. We're going to a meeting. So he takes off and doesn't take his helmet. So next thing I know, some of the neighborhood kids are knocking on my back door saying Ryan fell off a skateboard and the ambulance is there. And I'm like, well, you know, as Annie, you know, <laughs> Ryan fell off his skateboard before right in front of Annie's house. Which is pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. <laughs> and ended up at Marin General, same same hospital. I was at work and Annie was nice enough. I didn't even know you at the time. <laughs> take him to the hospital and sat there with him, this strange kid, until I got there. And that accident, you know, he had scraped up his whole, he was wearing a helmet, and he had scraped up his whole side, and, you know, so he was in pain, but no broken bones, no nothing. So when when these kids knocked on the door and said, Ryan fell off his skateboard, I kind of rolled my eyes like, okay, I called up to my husband, I said, all right, you know, Ryan fell off his skateboard, he's on Lagunitas Road, which is, you know, three blocks from our house. I said, I'll just run over there, see what's going on. And I really wasn't worried that the ambulance was there either because in our little town you know they call an ambulance for everything you know they got nothing else to do. you know it's like oh like fire trucks there the cop car the ambulance everybody's out you know it's like big deal it's like oh, whatever so i go over there and ryan is you know i had actually been stripped of his clothes i guess because they wanted to check and see if there were broken bones i'm not really sure to this day why i stripped him of his clothes except for his, his boxers and he was strapped into a stretcher but he was conscious and the only thing he had was a scrape on his forehead, a couple scrapes on his forehead, a scrape on his wrist. And I said, Ryan, what happened? Oh, I fell, you know, and the cop, our local officer, Bob, you know, I wasn't wearing a helmet. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm going to, you know, kill him as soon as he gets off the stretcher for not having his helmet. And the, the, the ambulance said, you know, we're going to take him to the hospital because he did hit his head. You know, we want to check that out. I said, I said, all right. You know, but Ryan, I said, Ryan, does anything hurt? He said, you know, I've got a headache. And he was, of course, still the sensory integration stuff, straining against mm. these straps. Boy, he hated having those straps around him. And he's, oh, can I get out of these straps? And I said, you know, they're going to put you in the ambulance. So they got to, they got to strap you in. So I gathered up his clothes, you know, threw him in the back seat. And I said, okay, my husband, I'll meet you over there you know, said to the ambulance guys. So I swing back home, uh, you know, they got to take him to the hospital, but he seems fine. So Barry and I get to the hospital and I open the back seat because I'm going to take his clothes in because he's going to need his clothes to go home. And then at the last minute I said, well, you know, he might have a concussion, you know, because I covered sports for a long time and football players who have concussions, you know, they often want to keep them overnight just for observation. So I threw the clothes back in. I said, oh, maybe they got to keep them overnight. So we went in and waiting in the waiting room. And I know when he went in last time, when you had taken him in, you know, I went back into the emergency area right away and you sit with your kid while they're treating him. And so we're sitting there filling out all the insurance things and still sitting there. And I went to the reception. I said, how come we can't go back there? And so she said, I don't know. So she called back there. She said, well, doctor, be out in a minute. So a doctor came out, you know, looking very serious, but I think that was just his look. And he said, um, you know, you can come back in a few minutes. We're getting him settled. We're like, all right. And so we're thinking, oh, maybe they're really busy or whatever. And another 15 minutes go by, you know, and then the double doors open again. And a woman, a middle-aged woman comes out and she says, are you Ryan's parents? And we said, yes. And I looked on her name tag and it said chaplain. Whoa. And Barry and I both like, why are you talking to us? She says, well, in a full trauma, you know, they call in a whole team and chaplain is part of the team. I said, well, what do you mean a full trauma? He just fell off his skateboard. She says, oh, well, you know, he is uh, in a drug-induced coma right now. And <gasps> we're like, what? I said, he fell off his skateboard. She says, you know, come back into my office. And so, I mean, at that point, then everything just started from there mm -hmm. to this, um, you know, three-month-long, well, you know, it's probably lifelong <laughs> odyssey that changed our lives. Now, how long was he in the drug-induced coma? He was in a drug-induced coma for about two and a half weeks. And what happened was, and, and also... I have to say that when the doctor came back and said, 
you know, explained that he was in a drug-induced coma because he had spiraled downward on in the ambulance on the way to Marin General. So that by the time he got to Marin General, they knew that he had a brain injury of some sort, a head injury. So they, it, it's common practice to put somebody like that in a drug-induced coma to keep them from thrashing around, from moving their heads, and, and also just to keep the brain activity low right. so that you're not aggravating whatever injury might be in there because they didn't know yet because he hadn't had a CT scan. And I had just finished a series of articles where I had followed two injured soldiers from Iraq from Walter Reed back to their towns. Both of them were double amputees. Both of them had had head injuries. I followed both of them for a year and I had finished the stories. And so the drugs that Ryan was on were exactly the same drugs these guys had been on. So it was familiar to me, and I knew these guys came out of their comas, and actually, brain-wise, they were absolutely fine. So I wasn't freaked out by it, actually. And so when we went in there, it's like, okay, I understand why he's in a drug-induced coma. It's not like he was in a real coma. Right. And that he was on, you know, Delant, and, you know, he had all these different drugs. Like, okay. And the nurses and doctors, you know, were kind of looking at us like, what's wrong with you people? You're not, you you're not, not reacting. Ups, you're not more. upset. Uh -huh. And do you need tissues? You know, and they're sort of talking to you in that pitiful way, you know, that you just want to say, you know what, just give me the information. Yeah. You know, we don't need your pity because there's nothing to pity us about yet. You don't know what's wrong with him. And the neurosurgeon hadn't come yet. And you know, but the doctor kept saying, you know, this is serious. This is a very serious injury. I said, but based on yeah. what? And I took out my notebook. I started <laughs> taking notes, you know, because there were things people said, like one guy who was, once the neurosurgeon came and he looked at the CT scan at first, he said, oh, you know, we're just going to observe him. You know, I think he's going to be okay. Then he came back a few minutes later. He says, oh, I'm sorry. I hadn't seen all the slides. He needs surgery right away. He's got a big bleed in his brain, and he needs surgery right away. And so that's when your stomach drops. Yeah. Okay, so then then I needed the Kleenex, and I was like, okay. And the anesthesiologist, I think it was the anesthesiologist there, said he's getting him ready. And he was like, you know, this is very, very serious. He said, um, do you have other children at home? What a thing to say. And I said, no, I don't. This is it. No, no spares. But I think maybe, and I took it the way you took yeah. it. Yeah. Do you Got have other children? Spare. Yeah. No, this is it. Put all my eggs in this one basket. So, you know, maybe what he was asking in retrospective and giving the benefit of the doubt, maybe it's like, okay, are, you know, are you going to be, you know, do you have other kids that you're going to take care of? Is this going to, you know, I don't know what he meant, but. I don't think there's any good way to spin no, it. No, I know. And that's when I took out the notebook and I started writing that down. I said, boy, this is going to make a good story later. Cause I was still thinking, okay, they're going to, you know, drain the bleed. Mm -hmm. We're done. You know, he'll, they'll bring him out of the coma and everything's going to be fine. But boy, I'm going to write a story about how insensitive, you get, yeah, how insensitive, you know, that these people can be and, you know, all the rest of it. And then he, he went into surgery and, you know, that's when I started to realize that, okay, this is, this could be very serious. in a drug-induced coma. What happened after the first surgery? So after the first surgery, they said, okay, what generally happens is that the brain is going to swell. It's like if you got popped in the eye, what happens? You know, you bruise the swelling for 72 hours and then the swelling goes down. Mm -hmm. So we really need to watch up the next 72 hours, you know, to make sure that the swelling is under control. And we usually deal with it through medications, you know, diuretics to just, you know, drain some of the fluid out of, out of the brain and, um, you know, just make sure. But, you know, so far so good. So but Ryan's brain just kept swelling and kept swelling and kept swelling. So what they do is just, you know, kind of drill a hole and put a drain in. Because what they do is they, they 
put a pressure monitor inside the brain so you look at the pressure and his pressure just kept going up and up and up and up and up and of course you know because the skull is a finite space unlike your eye if you get a black eye you know the skin will stretch as much as it needs to to accommodate the swelling obviously the skull doesn't do that so the brain if it swells too much of course is going to push up against the skull can't go any farther so what does it do it pushes down onto the brain stem and you have brain death so Ryan's brain would not stop swelling so what they ended up having to do and they had said early on well you know at a last measure what we do is we take the skull off so that the brain can swell upward so we're like oh my god that's never gonna happen you know and sure enough, of course, his brain kept swelling, so they had to take part of his skull off. But actually, oh, before that happened, though, what the doctor tried to do was to drain the fluid from the brain. He put, he, and he didn't want to put in a tube through the brain because he didn't want to damage any part of the brain because there's two ventricles, central ventricles in the brain that are filled with fluid. Well, Ryan's brain was swelling so much, it had pushed against one of the ventricles and basically shut it, shut it down. So the brain was kind of all shoved to one side because it was one side that was swelling. So he was afraid that if he tried to put in a tube into one of those ventricles, he might miss because the ventricles aren't in the place they're supposed to be and may damage a part of the brain that isn't already damaged. So he said, okay, I've got a good idea. The ventricles are like a, a chain of lakes. So you've got the two big ventricles in the brain, but then you have smaller ventricles that go down into the spinal column so that it all ends up draining out. So he said, okay, what if we drain the bottom lake? So if that's not full, the higher lakes will drain down into the lower lake. Oh, you know, it kind of, sounds brilliant, actually. So he put a, uh, he put a drain into the, the spinal column. Boy, his, his pressure went right down. Brilliant. Everybody's happy. Well, the only problem is that it overdrained. Hmm. So what happened was it kind of, you know, this sucking, you know, the, the, the fluid is going downward. Well, then so did the brain. And Ryan, you know, what's called, you know, he, he blew his pupil, which is indication that the brain is settling down on the brain stem. And that can cause brain death. So when that happened, they didn't know if he was already brain dead. So they rushed him off to surgery. This was his his initial injury was Wednesday, and this was the following Thursday. His pediatrician showed up, like everybody showed up, and we were just we didn't know if he was ever going to come out of that. He must have been a wreck. Oh, that was the one day because Barry and I were both really good because we just kept saying, okay. Today is just today, and, and every time there was a setback, there was a solution. Oh, you know, it was like every two days, oh, we're, we're fine, we're out of the woods, and then there would be a setback. Oh, we fixed it, now we're out of the woods, and then another setback. And then on this day, we just thought, oh, God, that's it. You know, I mean, it was just so serious. And when I saw, it's almost like when you're on a plane and, you know, something happens on a plane, you always look at the flight attendant. If the flight attendant's not worried, I'm not worried. If yeah. the flight attendant's worried, I'm worried, you know? And it was the same way with the doctors. You're trying to read their faces. Yeah, and when Ryan's pediatrician showed up, who's, you know, always optimistic, and he was just white as a sheet, and he was, like, stunned into, like, he didn't even know what to say to us. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, this is this is it. And I learned later that my friends, you know, were talking about planning Ryan's funeral. I mean, that's how, you know, we really thought and the doctors thought that that, that was it. So they did this emergency surgery, took off his entire skull to allow the brain to rise back up. And they, you know, we crossed our fingers. And he came out of it, you know, obviously still in the coma. And then the next day, we thought we were out of the woods. And by that time, we said, we've got to transfer him to the city because we were, you know, in a community hospital that, you know, has one ICU. They don't have a pediatric ICU. They had one surge, neurosurgeon on staff who was amazing. I mean, the guy just gave his whole heart and soul to this. He said it was this is the toughest case he'd had in 30 years. So we said, we need to transfer Ryan to a hospital that has teams of neurosurgeons and a pediatric 
ICU with nurses that you know, have more technical expertise, perhaps, in brain injury. So they got him stable to transfer. Then following morning, we thought he was stable. Everything's ready to go. You know, I had called my parents in Florida because they had said, you know, well, we should come out, you know, to help you. I said, you know what? Don't come out until he comes home because that's really when I'm going to need your help. Well, on that Thursday, I called them and I said, if you're going to come out, come out now. And so they flew out and arrived Friday. And we thought, okay, Ryan's stable. He's not out of the woods. He was still in, you know, critical condition, but he was stable. And then his pupil blew again that morning when the UCSF, UC San Francisco ICU ambulance had already arrived at Marin General. And the neurosurgeon sent them away, said, you know, he cannot can't transfer he him. He can't transfer him. And so he took him back down to surgery. Got a, to get another CT scan. He was expecting that Ryan had just stroked out over the, overnight and that he was going to see just unfixable horror show on the CT scan and that all our luck had run out. And so he went down there and, well, he immediately put in an, another drain because his intracranial pressure had shot up again. He realized that the uh, drain had plugged up, so he fixed the drain. The pressure had gone down, but because a pupil had blown, he thought he had stroked out. So he took him down, got the CT scan, and he's waiting. You know, it just takes a few minutes for the results to come, and he's waiting for the CT scan. And so the tech said, okay, you know, you got it, and he... He looked at the scan. He said, no. You know, he yelled at the technician. He said, no, I need Tompkins. I need the Tompkins CT. He said, that is Tompkins. He looks at the name. He looks at the date and the time. And he looks at the CT scan. And he comes running back upstairs to the waiting room. And he says to Barry and I, you know, come in here. You're not going to believe this. And we had had this great relationship with this guy. He just shared everything with us. We really felt like we were a team, mm -hmm. you know. He said, you're not going to believe this. We said, what? And we sat down in front of the monitor. He said, look at this. And by that point, we could read these CT scans pretty <laughs> well, you know. We're like, what? Ryan's brain looked the best it had looked since the accident. His brain was still off midline because one of the ventricles was still too full and his brain was still swollen. But... It looked almost normal. And I said, how did this how happen? How did that happen? <laughs> and he, I mean, this guy who's this grizzled kind of guy from the wrong side of town in this hard scrabble Massachusetts city. And, you know, he said, I don't know. He said, I have no explanation for you. He said, it shouldn't look like this, given what his physical symptoms were. He said, I have no idea. Now, you talk a little bit in the book about prayer. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about who was praying for Ryan. Well, first of all, I'll say that I wasn't because I had stopped believing in prayer. Grew up Catholic, and it just didn't make any sense to me. I mean, prayer just seemed like kind of a, you know, a cosmic version of American Idol, that if you got enough people to vote for you, then God would say, oh, okay, okay you're you the enough, winner. You got enough prayers. All right, I'll, I'll fix you. You know, I'll take your cancer away the because you, you had guys, so many. Yeah, you guys, sorry. Yeah, if you don't have a lot of friends and you're not praying, you know, sorry. I mean, the whole thing just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So, I mean, certainly I, I was sending good thoughts. I was thinking, you know, okay, Ryan, you know, you, I was kind of praying to Ryan, you know, okay, you got to be strong. You're going to do this, blah, 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 blah. But I wasn't praying to God. But again, I had just finished doing this story on this convent of, you know, really old fashioned nuns down in, uh, on the peninsula in California. And I just fell in love with these women. I mean, they were just the most fabulous group of women. And they have a, a whiteboard outside their rooms with people, you know, who, who write in, you know, can you pray for this? Can you pray for that? And I told my friend Lorna, who was with me throughout this whole thing, I said, you know, Lorna, you know, call the sisters. Put Ryan on, on the whiteboard. <laughs> the top I mean, ten list. Not going to hurt. You know, I, it's not going to hurt. 
And we had people just telling us all over the world, you know, just all friends and pe- friends of friends of friends of friends. And we're all praying for Ryan, praying for Ryan. And I must say that it did change me because there, whether you call it prayer or energy, whatever anybody wants to call it, there was, and I've never felt this before or since, but this palpable sense of being surrounded by this, you know, energy blanket or something that you could almost feel it come up the stairs or come up the elevator and come through the lobby and surround Ryan in his room. And and you just felt like there was something at work. I truly, truly believe that, that there was something at work with all this great energy going Ryan's way. And even this, you know, this grizzled neurosurgeon asked me, he said, what time did your parents land? And I told him, you know, around one. He said, well, that's as good an explanation as any, <laughs> that they showed up and Ryan was better. I and mean, he wasn't cured by any stretch, but he he wasn't dead. He wasn't brain damaged as far as we know. And of course, we wouldn't know until he came out of his coma. And he came out of the coma. And I'm going to ask you to read part of the book about okay. what happens when he comes out of the coma. He craved affection every waking minute. He wanted just to hold Barry and me and also Lorna and other close friends and family who came to visit. Everyone had to give him a hug and accept a kiss, which was completely out of character for Ryan. He was always a hugger, but never a kisser, not even with Barry and me. We would bombard him with kisses, and he rarely reciprocated. We knew he was truly sorry or wildly appreciative of something when he planted a kiss on our cheeks. It did not come naturally. Now he insisted on kisses, opening his right arm and inviting visitors into his embrace so he could press his lips to their faces. I found myself in response, stroking him and kissing him and practically crawling into bed with him. Only the spider web of tubes and wires prevented me. I couldn't get enough of him. It was as if a latch had been sprung on a box and everything soft and vulnerable inside me gushed out. His breath had this rancid odor, which is typical of people in comas, a nurse told me. Mucus and saliva sit so long in the mouth and throat that they ferment and rot. Yet, when I was driving home from the hospital and getting into bed at night, I sought out the smell on my hands and clothes. It reminded me of him. (laughs) Well, that seems like it was a turning point for you. Mm -hmm. And I know there were a lot more ups and downs in his medical recovery, a Mm -hmm. lot of really, really scary close calls, and he came out of it. Mm -hmm. And I would love for you to tell us how that beginning transformation turned into your normal way of being with Ryan during the hospital visits and stays into the rehab and um, into now. Yeah, in retrospect, I can see a couple of things were going on. One was for the first time in my life with Ryan, I was completely and utterly his mother. I wasn't anything else. I wasn't working. I wasn't doing anything else. I got to be just his mother. So that was one thing. Number two was, as I read in this passage, just all those natural instincts that I didn't think I had were unleashed. I had them. Either they were manufactured in that time, I like to think they were revealed. And they just came to the surface without me digging down for them. They were just there. And I responded to him in a different way. And the great gift of this experience, and there were actually so many of them, but the great gift of this experience is that I got to be Ryan's mother all over again as if he were a newborn because when you come out of a coma, in many ways you are a newborn. He couldn't speak. He couldn't, he couldn't eat. He could barely swallow. He, you know, would just look up at us with these adoring eyes that looked exactly like the baby I looked down on in a crib. And he would have his arms open like a baby in a crib. And so you respond that way. Except this time, I had the benefit of 16 years of 
what I didn't like about myself as a mother and what I wished I could have done differently. And it sounds like it was a conscious decision this time around, but it wasn't. I just became his mother all over again and got to do it all the second time. I got my second chance. And so how I responded to him was I got to celebrate everything he could do. Instead of looking at, oh, God, he's just not keeping up. Oh, he's not reading when he's supposed to. Boy, he's supposed to hit these milestones. The books are thrown away when you have a brain injury because there is no normal. The normal is whatever it's going to be. And so instead of saying, oh, he's not speaking, I know he's not speaking. He can't speak. So what you're, oh, my God, he said his first word. I mean, everything he did was a celebration. So you're looking at what's happening, not what's missing. You're looking at what's there instead of what's not there. And so it completely changed my orientation to how I looked at my child. And of course, down the road, when he did finally get well enough to go to a rehab center and learn to walk again, learn to speak, learn to swallow, all of those things, I got to stand back and be in absolute awe. Not just appreciate my child, but be in awe of my child. The way he went through this with such courage and good humor and grace. And you just say, boy, I wouldn't be that way. And I never had that experience before to just stand back there and say, oh my God, this is an amazing human being. And again, I I shudder to think that I could have gone through my life as this amazing person's mother and never recognized that in him. I mean, it brings me to tears even thinking about it. As hideous as this experience was, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but it did happen. So if something horrible happens, oh, I mean, what a wonderful thing that you can take away this gift, that you can be changed by it. If you allow yourself to be changed by it. And, and don't mm-hmm. don't resist the gift and don't misidentify the gift amongst all of the the fear, the anxiety, right. the, um, well, what do we do now? The confusion, the overwhelm, which you're very honest about talking about mm-hmm. as well. But you saw where you needed to be and you went to that place because Ryan needed that in you. Yep. And what I realized, I mean, a couple of things. One was... My orientation to Ryan was how much he needed me. Oh, gosh, you know, I've got to do this for him and this for him. And boy, isn't he lucky that, you know, I'm getting the best schooling and the best tutors and the occupational therapy, blah, 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 blah. What I didn't realize until a moment when he had come home, my parents came out because I had signed up to go to this big journalism conference back in Boston sponsored by Harvard. And I had been looking forward to going this. I've always wanted to go to this conference that they hold every year. And finally, I'm going. And this was like six months before Ryan's accident that I had signed up. And I still was thinking, oh, I'm going to go because my parents are going to come out here and stay with Ryan. And, you know, actually, he was still in the rehab hospital. That's why I could go because he wasn't home yet. So my parents just had to go to the rehab hospital, you know, and he had a schedule there and it was really no big deal. And I woke up two days before I was supposed to leave and saying, Oh my God, I can't go. Not because Ryan needs me, but I need him. I'm not ready to leave him. Just the thought of not seeing him every day. And I canceled the conference and it was really about me. And it was sort of, God, I never really needed anyone. Hmm. I mean, it's pretty pathetic though that, you know, my son was 16 years old and I never realized that how much I needed him, but I, I didn't realize that. You know, I was one of these people that was always in control and always competent and always, you know, okay, like practical to a fault. And what one of the many things you realize when you go through any kind of horrible illness is that it has its own rhythm. It's going to be what it's going to be. And you have no control (laughs) over any of it. You go with it or, or, you don't. And if you don't, you're going to be strung out all the time. All the time. And what we realized, like, this is, you know, we just kept telling you, okay, it is what it is. You can't change what it is. It is what it is. But it is what it is right now. 
that's not what it's going to be forever. So the way Ryan was, you know, when he was really debilitated by this, well, that's just what it is right now. That's okay. I can deal with this right now because it's not going to be this way forever. But I'm going to be here now with how he is. And then tomorrow is going to be tomorrow. And something's going to happen tomorrow and I'm going to have to be there tomorrow. And again, it's just this wonderful lesson that you just say, oh God, are there other ways to learn this other than going through <laughs> devastating experiences? And you know what? I don't know how well, I mean, maybe different brains. I couldn't learn it. You need to be hit Clearly. over the head. I needed to be hit over the <laughs> Literally. head. I did. Somebody needed to knock me down and strip me bare and say, hey, you know what? Get over yourself. You don't have this control. You can't fix everything. And guess what? There's some things that shouldn't be fixed. What you see as something that needs to be fixed, you know, hey, there are gifts to that. There are strengths in that. Mm -hmm. That let it be because it's great the way it is. There are opportunities. There are opportunities for you to learn. Now, you call the book The Water Giver. And I love the story behind the title for the book. And I, I wonder if you could share where that comes from because you said, you know, there's some things that can't be fixed, but there are seemingly small things that we can do that are gifts, mm -hmm. like a drink of water, mm -hmm. a spoonful of water, a drop of water that can make all the difference by putting someone at ease, letting them trust us and allowing us to be there for them. Mm -hmm. The title comes from one of the moments that I think marks a real change in who I became, who I was and who I became after this. And again, you know, as I said, I wasn't the great nurturer. You know, I was the rules person, like, I right, buck up, you know, this is the way it is. And, you know, it's against the rules and that, you know, I'm doing it because it's good for you. You know, I was that kind of person. My husband was more, ah, you know, have the six cookies, you know, whatever, ah, to make him happy. You know, oh, this is the way you're supposed to do things. Because that's the way I was brought up. So Ryan gets out of ICU when he's in a regular hospital room and he can't have any water. He can't eat. He can't swallow because the brain is still sending bad signals. So when something goes in his mouth, it's going down his trachea instead of his esophagus. And of course, he can get pneumonia. So he's working with the speech therapist to learn how to swallow again, retrain himself. But they do not give him any water because, you know, he can get pneumonia. But I'd been watching the speech therapist. I knew how it did. So somebody had left the room and had left a bottle of water on the windowsill. And Ryan's looking longingly at the bottle because he's causally asking for water. And so we have to give him, as everybody's seen, you know, those little sponges at the end of the sticks that they give you in hospitals that you suck on. So we can moisten it and he could just suck on it. You know, it wasn't very satisfying, clearly. So he said, Mom, water. And he couldn't talk much at this point, but he could say water and he could say Mom and you know, mom, water. I was like, Ryan, I really can't have the water. You know, explain it to him all over again. And Barry's in the room with me. And so he asked for it again. And just, I found myself standing up, going to the windowsill, <laughs> getting the water and taking the, you know, the tiny little cap that's on a bottle of water. Um, you know, the little, tiny, tiny cap, one that has a nozzle. And I filled it, it's got to be about a teaspoon of water. And I said, okay, Ryan, you know, remember what the speech therapist said, you know, you tuck your chin and pour the water in and, you know, really be conscious of the swallow. And, oh, he did. And it just, you know, the look on his face, you know, just getting that water. And so I gave him like three capsules. And meantime, my husband, who was always the big softy, you know, was shooting, you know, me darts, you know, with his eyes. And uh, and then he walked, Barry walked out of the room to go to the bathroom or something, Ryan, you know, immediately vomited up the water, but Barry, but Barry didn't see that. And I was like, okay, good. You know, but there was just something in me that said, oh, I have to give my child this water. And I know it could be bad for him, but I also knew that, I mean, it wasn't even a conscious thought. And that's so unusual to me because I'm like weighing, oh, well, should I do it? Well, what if I do this? You know, I'm usually that. And it was just like, no, I'm giving my child this water. So the next day I'm with Ryan by myself and the nurse comes in and he's asking Amy, Amy, water. And Amy goes through the whole rigmarole. I can't have the water, blah, 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 blah. And Ryan's in bed and I'm on the other side of the bed just sitting there. 
And Ryan just turns his head to me and he looks up at me with these like worshipful eyes that a baby does when they just see, like you're the sun and the moon and everything to them. He just looks at me and he says, Mom, the water giver. (laughs) And it was that moment I just, I mean, I choked up when he said it because I realized, oh, he sees me differently. I am not the mother I used to be. And he recognizes that, you know, I'm a water giver kind of mother. And it was just kind of an overwhelming feeling that I could have changed that much that I was becoming the mother I'd always wanted to be and could never figure out how to be her. And I was becoming the mother this child deserved. And the mother that you deserve to be. The book is called The Water Giver. The Story of a Mother, a Son, and Their Second Chance by Joan Ryan. And I want to thank you so much for being here, Joan. It was an honor to talk with you. And I so admire the honesty with which you wrote the book and the courage with which you and Barry and Ryan went through this entire episode, which is unending, right? Because it's parenting and there's no, there is no end to our lives as parents, which, no. uh, which is a good well, thing. Thank you so much, Annie, for giving me this forum. And hopefully there are other parents out there who either have gone through a similar thing or, or you know, maybe can get something from the book that you're not alone, that a lot of us are going through, you know, really challenging times. So, you know, I appreciate the compassion and understanding with which you approached the book and are sharing with other parents out there. So thank you, Annie. And one more thing, um, where can people find out more about you and the book? Well, I have a website that's www.joanryaninc.com, <laughs> and the book will be available in September. It comes out in September by Simon & Schuster, but it's already available to order on Amazon.com. Great. Thanks again, Joan. Good luck to you and Barry and to Ryan. Thank you. This is Annie Fox for Family Confidential. For more information about my work with tweens, teens, and parents, visit AnnieFox.com. And tune in next time when my guest, Mike Robbins, will discuss his new book, Be Yourself, Everyone Else is Already Taken. Till then, happy parenting!